This is the story of the Halibu member who tried to bring indigenous knowledge into his astronomy classes at the University of Toronto. Note, this story does not have a happy ending. I'm Glenn Wheeler, and this is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land, and water. Thank you for supporting Mi'kmaq Matters through Patreon or email funds transfer. Well, all you. We hear a lot these days about two-eyed seeing, the process of integrating Western and traditional knowledges. Hilding Nielsen is Mi'kmaq, a Halibut member, and assistant professor in the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Toronto. Stars are his thing, and he tries to bring Indigenous knowledges into his teaching. Of course, Mi'kmaq and other Indigenous peoples knew the night sky very well, and they passed on their knowledge through stories. Sadly, though universities have put out the welcome mat for Indigenous knowledges, there's still an arrogance by so-called hard science to traditional ways of knowing as Hilding Nielsen found out. I spoke with him about astronomy, traditional knowledges, and conflict caused by efforts to locate giant telescopes on indigenous lands. Your work involves stars. So tell us about your, your own research and academic interests. Yes, uh, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I'm really interested in understanding what stars do. You know, we, we look up in the night sky, we can see hundreds of stars if we're lucky, on a, if we're in a good dark spot. But stars are beings of their own, create own energy, they create energy, they help support life, they blow up as supernova, create black holes. And my research has focused on just understanding some of the detailed stories they tell us. Whether uh, during my PhD, I was studying a type of star called a cepheid, and we might know, we all know one Cepheid because Polaris, the North Star, is one. Mm-hmm. And Cepheids are stars that get brighter and dimmer, brighter and dimmer regularly over a period of time. And that change in light tells us about how far away they are. And it also tells us about the structure of the stars. And so one way to think about how that change in light and that time, that period, is to think about a musical instrument. I don't know how many of your listeners probably play guitar or play piano. If you have a guitar string, and you pluck it, you get a different sound based on the structure of the string, the tension, the material. And that different sound of frequency is the same as the period of that awesome change in light in the star. And that, so that change of light is actually telling us about the structure of the star, what's going on inside that star. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my PhD working on trying to figure out how we can tease out the details of the physics of that star how that star changes with time. And more recently, we've been working with students to take that idea of the period and go back in the literature and find measurements of how that period is changing with time. So centuries, if you go back a century or two, you can actually find measurements of these stars and the period of of vibration or how the light changes at time. And it's different today than it was then. Hmm. And that change is telling us directly about how a star changes in time. 
because that change of period is a change in the structure of the star. So that, it's real time stellar evolution. And so that's, one, that's been a key part of my research. Uh, and more recently, I've started focusing more on understanding stars that host planets. You know, in the last decade, we found about 5,000 planets orbiting other stars. And one of the key logistical problems with understanding the properties of those planets is how well we understand the properties of the stars that go around. Hmm. So I've been working with teams to develop new models of, of the stars' structures and, their, and how they emit light. And so that we can tease out properties like how heavy these stars are, how big in diameter these stars are, and just trying to understand those details so we can better understand the planets and perhaps find planets that could host life or might in the future, in the next 20 years, where we can actually take a look at the spectra and the atmosphere of the planet. We might be able to tease out whether there are things like biomarkers. Like, are we detecting ozone or carbon monoxide in these planets? Hmm. And so that's been the goal of my more recent research. Yes. Now, one of the uh, courses you teach at U of T is called Physics and Math of the Universe Focus on, on Indigenous Astronomy. Uh, tell us about the uh, about that course and, uh, and especially the part about the Indigenous astronomy. A number of years ago, I attended a national meeting of the Canadian Astronomical Society, where we were we were given a presentation by uh, an educator, Wilfred Buck. He is a Cree educator working in Manitoba, and he shares astronomy stories with his communities and his peoples in, in Manitoba as through education, through helping as medicine. And he goes around to these communities with a portable planetarium and he was sharing these stories. And I'm just like being Mi'kmaq, I'm wondering what's our story. You know, I think most of us know that I've heard the story of Muin and the seven bird hunters. Muin and the Seven Hunters links the annual cycle of natural seasonal events with the movement of the stars. Muin, the Mi'kmaq word for black bear, awakens from her winter sleep and, leaving her home up there in the skies, heads down to the ground looking for food. The Seven Bird Hunters chase Muin during spring and summer and kill her in autumn. The hunters hold a feast in winter to celebrate their success. Mawin's spirit goes back to her celestial den to enter the body of a new bear, who once again wakes from her winter sleep and goes down to the ground looking for food. She's chased by the hunters, and the cycle continues eternally. Do we have stories about other constellations, other stars, the planets? And trying to think about where is that knowledge? And why is that knowledge in our textbooks? You know, as an academic astronomer, if I open a 500-page textbook on the, on, that has everything about astronomy, it might have one page on indigenous knowledges. Mm. And most of that knowledge is talking about Mayan knowledge or Aztec knowledge and probably about how the world was supposed to end in 2012. Mm. And so part of it was going back and trying to understand and learn different indigenous knowledges from various resources and to put together a course um, for students to try to to engage and see indigenous knowledge in the sky. Who takes that course? Is it, uh, are they indigenous students or students with, uh, uh, who are not indigenous but have an interest or just people who are looking for a course that uh, fits their timetable for that term? 
So unfortunately, I was never able to get a formal course out of this. And so the Physics and the Math of the Universe course is a first year seminar. So a course for first year students to come in. It's a small class with about 20 students. And, and given I work at U of T where we have, our classes range from hundreds to thousands of students. It was a, the purpose of this course was to give students in their first year a chance to meet professors and work in small groups. And these courses are taught by different faculty and across different departments where they get to teach topics they, they think are important. And uh, my, for me, I chose indigenous knowledges. So it, unfortunately, it was never really formalized as a course in calendars, um, but it was also an opportunity for students to come in and see indigenous knowledge. As a first year course, um, as far as I'm aware, and every time I've taught, taught it, I have only had non-Indigenous students. And for them to come in and see this in a different light um, was an opportunity for them to sort of understand that astronomy was more than uh, you know, our standard Western perspective, more than um, you know, the movie Interstellar or the movie Arrival uh, or the movie The Martian. It's you know, contextual to different cultures. And, Student, you know, students would come in and they would, have, they would struggle with it, trying to understand, you know, how is the story like Mew and, and the Seven Bird Hunters scientific? What do we learn from it? And they have, so they have to engage with knowledge in a different way rather than the tr traditional Western way of teaching is that is a star, it goes around the earth, etc. Now that, that's very interesting because of course, we, uh, we're hearing a lot these days about uh, two wide seeing, uh, sort of integrative, um, approaches that uh, blend uh, so-called scientific knowledge with traditional knowledge. But I wonder if, um, if it can be truly integrative or whether the Western science will always have pride of place and indigenous knowledge will be reduced to stories, folklore, quaint tales that people told, but not on the same level and with a, the same credibility as uh, as the Western science? It's very hard to do so. I mean, indigenous knowledge is tens of thousands of years old, if not older, but Western science has dominated for centuries. And I think there's room for Western knowledge, knowledge to create space for indigenous knowledge. And indigenous knowledges, indigenous sciences don't need Western knowledges. You know, no, the Mi'kmaq knowledge base does not require Western science to exist, but in the academia, we need to represent the place and the land we're on. So we need to create space for indigenous knowledges. And as, to create something that's equal footing, I'm not sure is the, the best opportunity uh, because we still tend to look at uh, indigenous knowledges, at least from the Western perspective, as being in the past, as being pre-contact, as being oral. Whereas what if, you know, a lot of indigenous knowledge is built on the axiom of re relationality. Like, how is that phenomenon you observe related to you? How is the motion of that star related to the land you're on? Whereas Western science is about objectivity. And in, in, in that, you know, if I do an experiment in a lab, anyone else should be able to come into that lab and reproduce that experiment. It should have nothing to do with that person. But those two different axioms allow us to have different views of the world and the universe. And if we, if we start creating space for those axioms, we can actually start talking about indigenous knowledge and Western knowledge on more equal footing. Hmm. Now, you um, 
uh, I guess to some extent, uh, you're doing um, sort of vanguard work at U of T in, in trying to bring um, indigenous knowledge into uh, astronomy. And um, I want to ask you about uh, the way that's been greeted by your colleagues and about your experience of, uh, of trying to, uh, to blend um, uh, the two. And I understand it's not been a completely happy story. It's not an easy path. Um, I think I have a number of colleagues who are enthusiastic. The university is very enthusiastic. They have spent a lot of time producing uh, recommendations to follow the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There's lots of goals there. There's also lots of tokenism. Uh, not, funding agencies require demographic information now. So I've been asked a number of times in my career, uh, can you break down that you're indigenous on the survey? But there's also the negative side of this. You know, as scientists, we're trained to put the scientific method at the forefront. Uh, when we talk about things like pseudoscience, flat earthism, stuff like that, we say, here's some evidence that disproves it, and we're done. Whereas, and when we see indigenous knowledge, my, a lot of my colleagues' first thought is to try to apply that scientific method to it, and to try to talk about it in that respect. And, and in respect that, and some respects that creates a version of scientific racism, because it's trying to force a Western perspective on a non-Western uh, system of knowledge, or system of knowledge is. And some of my colleagues have been very resistant and some have been racist. Um, I think this came to a head a couple of years ago now when I was interviewed for a position at a camp satellite campus of U University of Toronto and the colleagues sabotaged that uh, interview because I had the audacity to say, we need to respect indigenous knowledges. Um, uh, from that interview and the behaviors during that interview, I, you know, I had to file, I filed grievances through the University of Toronto's faculty association, the equivalent of a union, uh, and spent a, a year trying to get the university's attention to respond to this. Um, I only received attention from the university after I filed a human rights complaint to the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario on the recommendation of the faculty association lawyers. Um, and even then, uh, you know, that interview was for a permanent uh, professor job position. And even then, the university refused to acknowledge it. Uh, it they just tried to, force me to a tried to force me into a settlement for a temporary position. Uh, it was made clear because I was on contract at that time during the negotiations and mediations with the university that any further steps beyond, after that mediation, if I would require me to be unemployed for a while, um, so, and if you're, if you're unemployed out of academia, it's almost impossible to mm. recover and get back in. So there was a lot of power dynamics playing, played, uh, played in that discussion. And, and tell us a bit more about the reaction of your colleagues, the, the, the behavior that made you um, file this complaint. Yeah. So during the interview, um, We've done over two days. The first day was more on the what traditional Western science kind of research, which went without incident. The second day was on education and teaching. And I, since I was being interviewed for a position as part of a Indigenous scholar hire, 
I felt it important to talk about embracing indigenous knowledge in the astronomy curriculum uh, and physics as well. And during that discussion, many of the faculty there were incensed and kept asking me about how is this actually science? Why is this science? Is this science? They demanded that I explain to them and talk about indigenous knowledges in the context of their science or their scientific beliefs. And it reached a point where, you know, we were at a lunch sitting in a room with a group of faculty and a campus elder where one of them just basically harassed me and said, how is this any different from homeopathy or how is this any different from young earth creationism? And every time I would try to answer, that person would interrupt me and just deny anything I was saying, saying, even if it was half a sentence. You know, it was very clear that I could not respond in a, in a way that was adequate. After that interview, the chair of that department profusely apologized and tried to convince me that I was not being judged on anything around the indigenous knowledge side of this conversation. Um, I think the chair was more trying to convince himself. But it was made very clear that not only did they not see how indigenous knowledges could be used and could be embraced by Western traditional sciences, they didn't want it. And so, you know, they basically sabotaged it and rejected, uh, which led to a rejection for that job. Finding a place in astronomy for indigenous knowledge, why do you, why do you think they find that so threatening or so disturbing? Um, I don't think there's any danger that, uh, you know, Western knowledge is going to be... Um, pushed off the, the pedestal, uh, but yet um, these, uh, these openings for indigenous knowledge are resisted. So how, how, are we to, how are we to understand that? I think as scientists in the Western system, we're trained to follow the scientific methodology. We're trained to have an observation, form a hypothesis or theory, and then to create ways of testing the hypothesis or theory. I think we're trained to believe that this is the ideal apex of how science is done. And this is the way that science is done. So we put up walls. We put up walls so that we can easily distinguish between what is scientific and what is a flat earth theory type of thing, or what is pseudoscience. And I think a lot of my colleagues, because they see the scientific methodology, that objectivity as the apex of, of Western knowledge, they're threatened by indigenous knowledge. They see it as without, because they don't understand that indigenous knowledge is carried with it ways of understanding, that it's more holistic about our nature and our connection to it, that it threatens that scientific methodology. And, you know, that creates a level of superiority. Um, you know, we live in a nation where we treat or that where indigenous people are treated as second-class citizens, where indigenous knowledge is treated as something lesser. And that's also true in the academy. And so the two of those reasons combined, I think, are why they were so resistant. Let's uh, change tack a little bit and, and talk about a, uh, um, an on-the-ground uh, issue. We have a number of places around the around the world where telescopes are being are being built on the land of indigenous people with uh, a lot of knowledge uh, of course of uh, of stars the very thing that these telescopes are being built to observe uh, but yet there's uh, 
not uh, any sensitivity to uh, the land or to the knowledge. And um, we have uh, events in, uh, in Chile, um, but also in Hawaii, there's uh, plans to build uh, uh, telescopes on indigenous ter territory without a lot of consultation. Is that a big topic of conversation among astronomers? Is there a progressive part of astronomy that is supporting indigenous people? Yeah, um, I think this whole situation came to a head in recent years because Canada is part of a group of countries, including uh, Japan and India, uh, as well as the University of California system, um, to build a 30-meter class telescope on top of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Now, there are a number of telescopes on, Hawaii, on Mauna Kea in Hawaii that were approved by the state of Hawaii and the University of Hawaii, but not by the native Hawaiians themselves. And if you wanna imagine what a 30 meter telescope would be on Mauna Kea, imagine it's essentially a five acre reserve with a 10 story building on top of it. You know, a 30 meter, the mirror for the telescope is 30 meters across. Right. So this is, it's not, you know, a backyard telescope. It's not like a telescope you might see uh, in, at Grenfell and Cornerbrook or in, at St. Mary's in Halifax. It is a large structure, very large structure that would impact land. And because of that history of Mauna Kea, going back through previous telescopes, Native Hawaiians have argued that they're not being properly consulted or that they give consent. And that's not to say all Native Hawaiians are against it, but there is a significant group. And I think the recently there have been protests on the mountain um, and, and leading to most recently a before COVID, a large encampment of Native Hawaiians and supporters who are protecting the land there and are were preventing construction after various court rulings deemed that Native Hawaiians had no rights to the land. Uh, it is worth noting Native Hawaiians do not have the same recognition as Native Americans do on the mainland of the US or as Indigenous First Nations people do in Canada. And so in, in the Canadian context and the Canadian community, this is a, a large issue because, you know, a lot of my colleagues were very are very invested in having this telescope. This is a, would change the, this telescope would change how we do research in the 2020s and 2030s. And ha having to face this, rec recognize this impact of colonization and the lack of consent that we've done in the last 40 years, because also, I should note, Canada was also one of the first countries to build a major telescope on Mauna Kea as part of the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope in the, um, started in the 1970s. You know, having to face that uh, history of colonization is not something that astronomers are used to. Astronomers tend to view our field as benevolent because we're always looking up at the sky. And therefore, we can not, how can we possibly impact people? Mm. But... You know, to do astronomy from the ground, we need large tracts of land. And if you want to do it w with an optical telescope, i.e. looking and with the same wavelengths as our eye or in the infrared, we need very high mountains with very stable atmospheres. And those there's, there are not that very many places in the world that allow that. Most of them are on indigenous land in Hawaii and Chile. We also build radio telescopes, which are constellations, groups of radio dishes spread across the land. Um, for your viewers who, or listeners who have seen the movie Contact, you've seen a radio telescope in action. And 
we're building ones, radio telescopes that are kilometers in area, all on indigenous land, because you, to build a radio telescope, you need a place with low cell phone interference, low TV signal interference, all that kind of microwave interference you need to get rid of. And so you, you go to indigenous land because there are fewer people there. Or traditionally, those lands are indigenous with fewer people. And so we are facing this history of colonization, and it has been a very heated discussion, though I think there are growing numbers of people within the professional community who are recognizing that impact. And that astronomy, as much as any other science, like biology, chemistry, has an ethical obligation to serve people, and that our actions and our facilities affect people. So I think in the next decade, we are starting to see, we will see changes in how we uh, go about new facilities and new telescopes. Hilding Nielsen, assistant professor in the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Toronto. And that's it for the program. Allison Baker is the producer of Make Mom Matters. Thanks for your financial support via patreon.com forward slash Matters or via email transfer, megamaw.matters at gmail.com. Will Aliok. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for the latest Mi'kmaq news and views. This is Glenn Wheeler saying, look after yourselves. Namultus. <laughs>